and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got some action cameras, some DJI announcements, and some wacky stuff from Nokia of all places. But first, Devin, what have you been up to, man? <laughs> uh, besides still, as usual in this season, uh, editing hell with uh, a few weddings and other things like that. Uh, if I can steal a few moments, I'm off playing uh, Rocket League. Because that's what all the kids are into these days. Wait, is that the game where the car... Is playing yeah. soccer. Yep. What's that about? I mean, like, <laughs> tell me more. I want to know. Oh, it's just it's it's a simple um, it, it's a winning formula. It's kind of like Angry Birds. It's a very simple kind of physics situation where you simply drive and jump with your car into a big ball and try to bounce it into a goal. Uh, but I think it's catching on because it's one of those games that's really easy to understand and pick up just by looking at it. But then for you to actually master the game and be very good at it, it takes a lot of time. Uh, and experience in the game so it's one of those that tons of people are jumping on and playing right now and i'm slightly addicted to it as well <laughs> i haven't even had any time for gaming i i have that horribly large uh, steam addiction where you know you, you, oh it's on sale for like a dollar 99 you buy it and then you just never get time to play it um, there's probably like 20 or 30 games in my collection right now that i haven't even touched yet i've just been so busy editing and on my end, basically, just more editing. I finished one feature-length <laughs> film. Um, okay, so I want to talk about this really quick. And I brought this up on the last podcast, but I figured I'd discuss it with you. I don't normally have to author DVDs anymore. You know, that's not, like, <laughs> something I have to do, but I had to do it quite a bit in the early 2000s, like 2006, 2007. I was authoring DVDs all the time. So right. I have to author a, a DVD now with the menu, build all the infrastructure behind it and stuff, and, you know, do the data disk bit so people can get media and crap like that. But right. the issue is I went to my old steady standby, which was Encore from Adobe, and it hasn't been updated since CS6. Yeah. <laughs> and, they dropped it after CS6. Yeah. yeah, and so I had no idea. So what do you use for DVD authoring now, man? <laughs> I don't use anything. Um, it's Whoa. actually funny because I've been, I know, right? I've been looking at uh, a few Blu-ray options because a lot of festivals, they'll ask for uh, uh, Blu-rays. Uh, if they don't support that, uh, I forget what it's called, that cinema distribution package or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I know that. what you're talking about. Um, and uh, as weird as it sounds, super reliable. What I've always ended up using is uh, DVD Flick, which is free software that's been around for too long. Uh, usually what I've done in the past is in terms of creating your own menus, they have a very simple menu based system. I usually go in and just edit XML files in order to build out the menu system the way that I need it to be. Uh, and then I just use their software, which has a decent encoding, uh, to it and everything else and pumps them out onto DVDs. It's just super reliable and it works with many formats and it's definitely my go-to if I'm just like, Oh, I need to take this and turn it into a DVD for a customer and they don't need anything that fancy. That's what I go to. Otherwise, I know that on is it is it Encore? Encore had like Blu-ray support in CS6, I think. Yeah, it does have Blu-ray support, and I can author my Blu-ray and my DVD menus and stuff in there. Yeah, and let me show you like where I'm at. So um, this is inside baseball for <laughs> I don't know if I'm even supposed to be showing these menus off, but uh, basically like I've got some there's you know motion graphics in the background. I've got mm -hmm. the uh, cartoon drawing, uh, you know. Uh, warning there's some uh um cartoon breasts in this i apologize uh but uh basically and actually i don't know if i should have done that live I should... <laughs> oh man okay for audio listeners uh basically this menu and maybe i should just click away right now ah oh, there's more um 
<laughs> okay, I just got my explicit rating. So I'm going to go ahead and exit out of this now before I get myself into trouble. Crap, that was that was live. Um, yeah, whoops. That's, that's the great part about being live. I um, completely so forgot yeah. about the breasts. Um, so anyway, the, the point is, is uh, you can get everything sort of done in there, but um, compression and stuff is sort of an issue right now. Uh, the movie that I'm editing, I finished it up, it's two hours long, and even with an 8. You know, three gig or eight gig uh, DVD. You know, the dual layer setup. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gonna exceed that. So I need some way to compress stuff down. And you know, you're limited by a two meg encoding um, on Encore. So to get the special features and the film and everything else on there, uh, it's gonna be pretty tough. Um, I'm looking at. Wait. So so let me get this straight though. Two hours of content should be easy to fit onto a dual layer disc, which is roughly eight gigabytes. So the special feature really is is what another hour is another or two hour. Hours? There's an hour twenty minute special feature as well as like three short films that the uh, production group wants crammed onto this. So Jeez. yeah. So what I'm thinking, and this this is pretty ghetto, but what I'm thinking is maybe export a DVD ISO in Encore, and then bring the ISO into something like DVD Shrink and use that to really compress the crud no. out no, of don't even. all of the special menu features. Because, you know, all that really matters is that the main feature looks good. Everything else could look like hell. Right. And as long as it's on there, I've done my job and I can walk away. Um, they won't let me cut anything out of the special feature, so I'm <laughs> working on all that right now, and it's... It's turned into this ordeal where... What I would do if I were you first, uh, because that's not a bad way to go about it, but first I would try to do a a DVD-compatible MPEG-2 encoding uh, from encoder or the timeline into a format. Because if you're using the encoder, it should allow you to go underneath that 2 megabit limit that I think Encore has for really crappy DVD players that don't understand how to go under 2 megabit. And so... Because, I mean, that's why it's there, I think, is for compatibility sake with older DVD players, which probably would never be an issue for 99% of the DVD players it's shoved into, but still. Yeah, so if you try encoding it out there, you might get better quality than going to something like DVD Shrink that's going to take the MPEG-2 and, and then just... munch down in the MPEG-2. And it's the open source MPEG-2 that they use, the FFmpeg, is not quite as good as what Adobe's got for MPEG-2 in most cases, so... You know, give or take. So it's just, it's one of those, I would try that first using encoder to encode to something compatible. So then when you bring it into Encore, Encore just accepts the file and doesn't try to re-encode it. Yeah. So that'd be something I'd try, but that's, it's been a long time since I've used it. So I, I brought everything in in MPEG format, you know, the, a DVD, because this is this will be released on Blu-ray and DVD, and there's no issue on the Blu-ray. There's plenty of space to put, you know, 1080p yeah, footage. Yeah. yeah, so there's, that's not an issue, but the... The DVD, I, I brought everything in MPEG format and, uh, you know, MPEG 2, and it's, you know, it's as small as it can be, and it won't allow you to go under that threshold. Anytime I try to do that, it actually upcodes to 2 meg, so it, even if the original yeah. MPEG is encoded at, like, 1.1 or 1.0, it pushes it up to 2 meg per second, so then you're back to the same issue of, like, taking 14 gig or so, to, you know, to fit on this disc. Yeah. I, yeah, you're right. I don't know if DVD shrinks the right answer, but I know that Encore limits you. If somebody else has some some compatibility things where I don't have to rebuild my entire menu and can <laughs> you know go over to that because I've already done all of the uh, you know uh, editing of the photos and and all that other junk, and typing you know, up typing all the, the menus, menus building the all the links and the navigation and everything else. And I mean that's like four days worth of work. So 
I would like to stay in there if I can. Another another thing you can try, uh, it, it goes to ISO files, right? You don't yeah, have you to can burn. generate an ISO. And I could generate so, one that's like 16 or 17 gig. No, no, no. What I would do is, yeah, generate one that's big and then pull out the VOBs, re-encode the VOBs, shove them back into the ISO with something like 7-zip, and then burn that ISO, and I bet you it'll work. Well, isn't that basically what we're doing with, like, DVD shrink, where I would be grabbing the .VOBs and then compressing them in DV, you know, DVD shrink and then putting yeah. them back into the folder again? So, you know, if you're going to use open source recording... Sure, but I was just thinking at least you could do it through encoder or something like that. Well, you could go back to the raw files and create the VOBs and then just inject them into your system already. So you're only doing one encoding from raw footage. But if you get I, what I'm saying? Yeah, if I do that, though, I might end up breaking the link structure in the menu in the process. Well, I'm pretty sure the menu system is just based on file names. We're talking about 92 technology here. I'm yeah, pretty sure true. the file name's the same. It's going to go to the DVD player and say, play this file. And Encoder probably has that 2 megabit limit just because of really old DVD players that couldn't do it. And I bet you anything modern these days will handle any bit rate you throw at it. Yeah, so as long as I keep the VOB file names correct, this is all getting really deep into the weeds. But It is getting technical. <laughs> if anybody else has run into this issue, I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, definitely want to know, like, hey, what do you do to create DVDs? And are, Is anybody even asking for DVDs anymore? The problem for me is yeah. uh, with a lot of these films I work on, we go through the convention circuit. And the way they actually raise money is by selling three or four crates of DVDs at every convention and doing interviews and panels and stuff like that. So these mm -hmm. guys really want DVDs because they're less expensive for people to buy and the profit margin is higher than Blu-ray discs. So because, you know, printing right. a Blu-ray disc, uh, even if you do a limited run, like a couple thousand, you're still talking roughly three or four bucks uh, just for each for the media. Whereas if you go DVDs... It's like 90 cents when you get up to the like 8,000 or 9,000 printing range. So then it's yeah. super cheap, you know, and you can sell them for 10 bucks because 10 bucks is, you know, a good number. People like to pay $10. So then, you know, that's pretty high profit mm -hmm. for the group whenever they're selling them. Uh, just some stuff I'm trying to figure out here. And uh, yeah, so that's what I've been working on. Also, you can see the studio is a mess. I kind of want to talk about this a little bit. Um, <laughs> you'll notice the camera is in a new location here. Uh, I've got this brand new freaking 4K IPS monitor, and this is actually what's providing my light here. It's this monster here, and I've actually got it wall-mounted now. You can see my level still attached, actually, to it. <laughs> uh, I just got it wall-mounted, so I had to upgrade my desk and clean everything off, and my desk is just was turning into a... You know, you have a desk, you have a flat surface, and you're probably guilty of this too, Devin, where you're like, okay... Oh. Uh, I got this uh, camera. I'm going to set it right here. And then I've got this, uh, you know, follow focus. I'm going to set it over here. And, and pretty soon before you know it, your entire desk is completely cluttered with junk. Mm -hmm. and, and now a lot of the junk that you see on the floor is junk that was moved off of this desk to upgrade the desk to make room for all the crap and then uh, <laughs> move back in again. And this monitor is so big and the cable run is so far that I actually had to order new DisplayPort cables just to get from my desktop over to the monitor. So really sexy. This is, um, by the way, it's a Wasabi Mango is the name of the monitor. And this is the UHD 420. It's gorgeous. Um, you can see the amount of light it's putting out. This is what's basically my front light right here. So, you know, I have glowing, <laughs> sparkly eyes. It's because I'm staring at a giant glowing monitor. IPS is definitely a step up, too, from uh, the uh, TN panels I was using previously. Now, 
Before we dive any further into the weeds, I'm going to switch over to the news. Time for the news. First thing I've got on the list here is actually new stuff from Rokinon. If you're not familiar with Rokinon, they are well known for their mid to low priced lenses. Uh, they came out with a lot of those early primes, uh, most infamously the 8514. They also are branded under Rokinon, Samyung, and various other names. Uh, this new line, though, is higher in price and a little fancier. Uh, they're calling these the Xeon. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And the Xeon lenses are basically a set of cinema glass for $2,500 a piece. Uh, we're talking a 24T 1.5, a 50 T1.5 and an 85mm T1.5. Uh, they'll be coming out in both EF M43, PL E-mount and F-mount for Nikon users. Uh, these are pretty spendy, very expensive lenses. Uh, they do have the unlocked uh, you know, aperture and all that stuff and a nice gear. They look really good, but $7,500 for a set of three, what do you think, Devin? <laughs> um, I think that's actually... I, I mean, of course, I want to see some actual... Uh, footage and some performance on it, uh, but I think that that is an amazing good price. And I know that you are like, "Wow, that is a lot for a cinema lens." But uh, these are the kind of lenses that you don't normally uh, purchase for yourself per se. These are kind of the lenses that, when you're on a large shoot with a crew, uh, you rent these kind of lenses. I mean, these are at a price point where you could consider just buying an entire kit. Uh, 8000 is kind of a big investment to make, but depending on if you go with a Canon mount or something like that, you know it'll be worth something down the road. Uh, you compare that to, you know, like the Canon Prime set uh, for their cinema series, and that's twelve grand. So it's definitely cheaper. What I'm really excited about, though, is if they can really match most of the performance you get from a Canon cinema line, it means that when you go to the rental house, they're probably going to have twice as many of these Rokinons as they have the Canon cinema lenses. And it means that they're going to be a lot cheaper to rent for a weekend or a day rate or something like that. These are the kind of lenses that have super long, uh, as they call it, focus throws, which means that it takes a lot of turning to shift the focus. And the reason for that is because you normally have a follow focus attached and it's a lot easier to focus on the run as opposed to photography lenses that have a very short focus throw because they're usually being run in automatic mode anyway. So... To me, I'm, they're already geared, it, it, they're you know a great size, and you can tell that they're serious about this line because they even natively include a PL mount that you can purchase for this line too, which means you can use it with your larger cameras. If you got a RED with a PL mount or something like that, these things will pop straight on. So that's a big selling point as well. I'm super excited about them. I want to see some footage through them. I want to play with them a bit and handle them. And uh, I'm sure that they aren't going to cost nearly as much as the Canon does uh, out of the gate for rentals and things like that. Now, you say that, and the reason I'm actually shocked to buy the price is not because they are overpriced for cinema glass. I'm shocked because we have this right here. If you go on eBay, uh, you can buy Gray Market, uh, the entire cinema set from Canon, uh, Gray Market, for about 10000 So... That's only, you know, for the price difference at between... greatmarket.com? No, no, not a great... This is just regular <laughs> eBay, but, you know, this is coming over from Japan, so there's the yen yeah. changeover and all that stuff that they're able to take advantage of. So for that price, you know, you're not very far off from uh, just... If you're going to spend that much money anyway, you can go, uh, a, what, a 
$2,500 more and you're up to Canon cinema lenses. And those resale value will probably hold a little bit better than Rokinon. Uh, you know, they're not known specifically for right. awesome but cinema still, glass. And then the other is thing that, is uh, you get a 50 millimeter uh, T13 and an 85 millimeter T13. Uh, which gives you a even shallower depth of field in those two focal lengths. And then your 24 is still a T15. So now you have a little bit more, uh, you know, bokeh or whatever out of them. So that means the glass is, I, to me, I guess, a little bit nicer. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Sure. It seems like it's not, no, it, for a bargain got, brand, it should point. be cheaper is what I'm thinking, like $5,000 for the set. You know what I mean? Sure. Um and Rokinon hasn't done it before, as far as I know, but I've seen other people like uh, the Voigtlanders and SLR Magic that come out really high and really strong, and then within the first year do some crazy price drops. Uh, I mean, even Panasonic has done a bit of that, too, as they try to find their pricing point. Let's just say that the Rokinons, you know, minus the 1.3, are point for point as good of a piece of glass as the Canon series. Oh, he just and threw down. That- and that whole, but that whole price difference that you're talking about, which you don't think is a whole lot, that's a C300. So it's like, so it's it's one of those where I go, ah, it's still cheap for exactly what you're getting and everything else if the performance is there. So it's all hearsay until people start doing some side by sides. You know, there's gonna be a thousand shoot offs with this whole thing. But uh, let's just say that Rokinon figured it out and they made something as good as Canon, and this could just be something to be like, hey. Everything that Canon makes, we have competition that's cheaper. And it could just be part of their branding and marketing as well. But I've, I've got high hopes because I've loved my Can- uh, Rokinon 85 T1.5 cinema that I've got. And I would love to see how their 85 T1.5 cinema, you know, I don't even know, the zine or whatever line, how that outperforms their previous line. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, is this Xeon, like the processor, you know, it's right away. But um, the other thing, and I, I don't want to forget this, because Rokinon basically does have a cinema setup that is budget priced. Uh, for about mm-hmm. two grand, you can buy the 24, the 35, the 50, and the 85 T1.5. Now, these gla- or these pieces of glass don't have uniform uh, hoods, so you know you can't just go from one right. to the other. This, and there, there are some differences. The markers and stuff aren't quite as professional. You're right. There's probably more throw uh, and travel on the focus ring on this guy for more accurate uh, follow or you know focus pulling. But uh, this is the cheap set if you do want to really save some money. So I guess I shouldn't really say like I want this to be less expensive. I just it's so close to Canon pricing that I would almost just jump over to Canon. The other thing is they do mention that this is available for micro four thirds mount, but really, mm-hmm. you know, it you've got crazy. stuff like the Vidra, you know, that their, their mm-hmm. lens setup was like what? 3,500 or $3,600 for their entire line. And yeah. I guess those are T 2.2. So not quite as wide open as you'd get out of these, but imagine something like this attached to a GH four. I mean, that would start to get ridiculous, right? <laughs> Well, my, my recommendation with something like this, especially, too, because you've got uh, the lowest you're going is a 24, and these are built for full-frame 35 millimeter, is to buy them as a Canon or Nikon mount. Since these are all manuals, I would usually buy them as a Nikon mount, and then I can throw them on a Nikon with a small shim. I can throw them on a Canon, or then even with a, you know, a speed booster, I can throw them onto a Panasonic or your mirrorless cameras. So you get a lot more use out of a, one of these guys set up as a Nikon G mount or a Canon mount, 
as opposed to the micro four thirds where all they're going to do is add that flange distance for you. And so you end up with a longer lens, but it's not like you end up with, you know, better performance or features than you'd get if you just used a $15 adapter off eBay to attach a Canon lens to a mirrorless mount. So I would never recommend these in micro four thirds. It, I think it's just because for their product line, it's cheap and able to do that. And so then they can advertise our zine line or whatever fits every camera out there. Uh, especially too, because like I said, I was surprised at the PL mount, the fact that it comes with that nail, because PL mounts is something that's like, you don't just buy a $15 adapter to do a PL mount no. on, in most situations. So them having a PL mount, this could be a way that you can get a cheap set of PL mount cinema glass compared to Canon and, you know, the Zeiss and everything else, the crazy stuff that's out there. Uh, so last thing on these lenses, they'll be shipping here next month. So uh, they are available for pre-order. To on, your house. Yeah, not to my house. <laughs> I don't need any more glass. I've got enough glass in my collection. But uh, yeah, this will this will be shipping fairly soon. So keep an eye out for it. Um, if you do have that money to invest, otherwise, you know, there are many cheaper options, especially for people that aren't making enough money to support a $10,000 lens purchase. Uh, moving on down the line to stuff that's also for regular people. Uh, DJI <laughs> just announced the Phantom 3 Standard Edition. This is a quadcopter with camera for $799. Now, the camera included on this shoots 2.7K at 30 frames per second. It has a 25-minute fly time. And the other thing to note on here, and this is kind of interesting, is we've been kind of getting a lot of buzz in the uh, drone market for stuff that can follow you, fly around you, and move around in sort of a planned trajectory and path. Well, with the latest line of uh, DJI Phantoms, they're including a follow me mode, a waypoint mode where you set different positions on a map and have it follow through that path, and then a circle of subject uh, sort of flying pattern where you set it in the center and then it'll fly circles around you with the camera pointed at whatever your subject matter is. Uh, this is supposed to have advanced... Uh, uh, controls so that it's easier to fly. Uh, there's also an advanced and a professional version, both of which are a thousand and thirteen hundred respectively. Devin, what do you think? You're gonna get a you're gonna get your own drone and start <laughs> flying around and doing you know wedding videos with uh, aerials. I've been attempted, but uh, the horror stories like that uh, that one wedding video with the drone, if you remember, <laughs> two years ago, uh, where pilot flew into the kissing couple but it's it's definitely it's one of those I've, i do have one of these already uh just because i'm an rc hobbyist and i like to fly them and wire them and program them and mess with all that kind of stuff in terms of filming and the following mode and everything else it's really fascinating and it goes to show you that uh this stuff is still so new and there's still so much innovation that can happen in this product place uh i remember people who were like waiting around for the second revision to come out the phantom 2 uh, because they're like, oh, there's these quirks and they'll get it all fixed on number two and everything else. And now that you look at all the stuff that the three has and you could argue that you should have waited till the three, which shows me that the technology is just growing at a rapid pace for these things. Um, it, it's one of those where I just I don't find uh, the Phantom camera shots to be very useful in most cases. It's great to have for one or two shots, but most of the time with the editing and the video production, and everything else, unless you're doing something cool like the quarter digital guys who do what if Superman wore a GoPro yeah. that entire video <laughs> is dependent on a quad. Um, but if you're, if you're not doing something specific like that and you're, whether it's like, even if you're doing retail uh, or uh, properties, you're showing off properties or you're showing like, Oh, here's a water park. You're doing a commercial for that. There's one or two shots you can use, but you're so far away from, you know, I, I don't want to sound pretentious, but like the human element, 
uh, seeing faces and reactions and things like that, that it's great for a setting. It's great for going into a scene or exiting a scene or establishing space, but I don't ever see it being all that useful for most of the actual stuff that matters in a video. So I love flying them and I love shooting with them. Uh, but lately I've been getting into quadcopter racing because for me, that's a lot more fun uh, than shooting videos with quadcopters. But it's one of those that like, if this is what they did with the Phantom three, it's like, what are they going to do with the Phantom four? This is completely opposite of what we've seen in like the camera market with like the Canon rebel where every year it's just kind of like, Oh, here's one little new feature. There's nothing like, you know, groundbreaking with all their stuff. So it shows that this is still a greatly emerging market and I don't know if there's much business in running it, but I'm definitely fascinated to see what they come out with and how it grows over time. One of the things that's really interesting about what DJI is doing is they've moved away from, you know, using other people's camera systems to their own dedicated camera. So if you think about the price of, say, a Hero 4 Black Edition, you're talking what around 400 to $500, depending on which yeah. model of flavor and all that you buy. Well, And then a gimbal. Yeah, exactly. So their pro and advanced version... Uh, come with a 4K capable camera ready to roll mounted on there and their you know standard version even comes with like what would be equivalent to roughly a Hero 3 black edition so mm -hmm. you know for those prices you think about it they're including a camera and the entire uh flying elements everything else motors gyros you name it into the price of this for 799 so only You're getting a couple a hundred bucks above the cost of buying a camera by itself and you are into a DJI uh, drone. So now, I mean, it's it's hard to justify like, oh, I'm going to buy an action cam. Well, if you have 200 more dollars, maybe you should buy this and start shooting stuff. Now, and I also wanted to say, you know, as far as shooting stuff goes, there are many instances where a quadcopter is more ideal than bringing a crane in or something large yeah. to to get that sort of visual motion. Uh, there's a lot of times where you need, you know, a flyover of a vehicle or the, the entry shot where the camera goes up and like captures the building and everything else around it. Uh, it you can do that with a crane, but hauling a crane in is a pain in the butt. Flying a quadcopter for five minutes is well worth it for that. There's also a yeah. bunch of the dramatic establishing shots. Uh, usually I, I have someone come in and fly them for me because I am not good <laughs> at flying drones. That's why I always I always caution people. And it's cool that they're getting into this point now where the drones kind of have self-stabilization. The software takes care of a lot of the piloting so you don't make you know amateur mm -hmm. mistakes and crash it. Um, but in the early days, if you're flying one yourself, it, it takes a lot because you have to know the wind speed. You have to be careful about how you maneuver it. If you move too far mm -hmm. away from yourself, you know, if your battery, if you're not paying attention to where your battery's at, uh, there didn't used to be an easy method to just make the drone land. Now, a lot of them would go into the drink if you're flying over water, stuff like that. So, and that's and, and that's the thing too is that you bring up a good point that their main focus is making this easier, uh, obviously because they know that's what's going to lead to product adoption. Uh, the new the new system, which is totally way more advanced than the Phantom 2, because in here you've got a down-facing camera, not for video purposes, but so that it can use image recognition to realize where it is in space. Um, I think, too, they talked about the new Phantom also uses Russian uh, positioning satellites, which is a little bit more accurate than the GPS system really? by the U.S. military. Yeah. Uh, then And they've also talked about they've got – I think they've got a sonar thing that they use for their whole landing and takeoff procedure. So they're basically turning this into like a one-click launch thing, a one-click touchdown, as well, too, that having that iPhone screen or whatever that's attached through the Wi-Fi to the uh, device shows you like, hey – 
you're almost it's got like a countdown timer being like you're this far away it'll take you this long to fly back and it'll alert you going whoa you've gone too far you aren't gonna have battery for the return trip so it's got all this kind of stuff wrapped up together super smart um and so they've built it to be even more stable and uh by virtue of that even easier to fly so it's one of those that this is like a totally different product than one and two was so it's a huge jump and it's funny because this is all in their like consumer level this is all in like their bottom tier because you've got the inspire and all that kind of stuff going on and so i can't wait till like the next inspire comes out that has all these kind of features baked into it and everything else so this is really exciting stuff but yeah they're making it so that even you know dj over here can fly one of them hey now um (laughs) i'm skilled at many things but uh, i cannot be skilled at everything and sometimes you have to know your limits and flying a drone is one of my limits uh same with setting up that freaking you know handheld stabilizer with a bunch of screws Uh, i don't know if that's in my wheelhouse man like i i'm good but i'm not that good uh anyway this is really interesting it's great that dji is bringing new ones home i think the you asked about innovation and what they can do next. Well, honestly, I think the best thing that they could do with these is make them lighter so that you get mm-hmm. longer fly time. So I think with this Even one, one now, of the things you look, they used... 25 minutes. Yeah, well... 25 they, minutes is long, man. That's I know, a that's what I'm saying. But they what they did on this one, if you look at the format compared to the previous generation, is it got smaller, it, get li- it got lighter. They uh, scaled down the motor size to just the minimum amount you needed to get it into the air. And if they can keep honing that down and maybe get it up to 35 or 40 minutes, I mean, imagine now 40 minutes of fly time, that's pretty darn good. I mean, you can basically Mm -hmm. accomplish anything you want with that amount of flying time. In the past, it was 15 minutes, 10 minutes, or you had to use one of those crazy uh, uh, six copter or, you know, six uh, propeller uh, gas powered units and have like three people operate it. So, you know, this thing is, is bringing super high-end stuff to the low-end market. People are able to do amazing stuff with that. And I'm using that as a transition leap here, and I'm going to jump ahead <laughs> to uh, this story from Petapixel about analysts predicting that pros are going to start moving away from the DSLR camera market and moving into higher-end cameras again. Uh, over the past, what, probably six years or so, people vacated the high-end market and jumped into <laughs> the DSLR market because you got a full-frame sensor, you're able to get glass that was very affordable and get beautiful pictures out of it in a price range that was a quarter to a tenth the price of a higher-end camera. Now right. we're starting to see cameras that co- are coming out with the features of a DSLR but also the features of a full fledged video rig uh what do you think devin are you gonna move away from dslrs and switch back over to like full (laughs) high-end cameras or what's your plan um it i think as always it comes down to you know what's the best camera and the price point and everything else Uh, you gotta understand why people merged into doing dslr video and i think a large part of that was the fact that hey one is that it was relatively cheap two the video was actually 1080p. This is, you know, remember this is during the whole HD revolution and most of your, even your standard F cameras would maybe only be like 360 lines and then your HD cameras would be like 560 lines and it'd be upscaling and interpolating to 1080 or 720. So you consider that like, and those were the $5,000 prosumer cameras that weren't actually giving you every pixel and they're giving you like four to zero color space and stuff well, like no, that. Well, no, hold on a second. You had the camera, all the DV cameras from the Canon HV20 up 
were all mm-hmm. you know, and that was like what 2005. They were shooting yeah. 1080 or 1080p, but it was windowed 1080p on. <laughs> on on dv tape and then after right. that generation the first generation the second generation was uh, full 1080p so it wasn't like a you know a cropped windowed widescreen version and uh, where i'm going with that is basically you adapted lenses to that so i thought the to me the sure. changeover was actually being able to put lenses on a 1080p camera uh versus trying to use some sort of you know lens converter that made him so attractive. Sure. Right. Am I wrong? Right. I, you know. I, no, no, no. You're right. You're right. Because I remember the, what was it? Was it Lettuce 35 or yeah, something? Yeah, Lattice like 35 used to sell, it was like a vibrating piece that went into a tube, and the tube attached mm-hmm. to your lens, and then you turned your camera either upside down or you had to flip your video and post, and you attached it to this crazy rig, <laughs> and then you were it able to crazy. get, you know, bokeh. But, but what you were doing was basically you were forward focusing on the back element of whatever Icon lens, another lens, exactly. And then the lens is projecting onto a piece of film, basically. And then your camera was focusing on that same piece of like film, so that the focus would all match up in the middle. And then you'd be able to like get your shot. And I do remember that because I used some of that. And you're right, the lenses and having shallow depth of field was a big thing for me. But even so, looking back at all my old footage, I go a six hundred dollar, seven hundred dollar, you know, Canon T two I at the time. Their 1080p looks way better than, you know, most of these 1080ps I was rolling out of these cameras because HDV was, you know, just a transition format. It wasn't really serious for a lot of stuff. And um, and most people just couldn't figure out how to get cheap memory and everything else. So I think it was really that you you have improved sensor quality and you have the ability to put on your own glass that made everyone jump over and go, this looks way better. I think that the we see that uh, uh, prosumer, for lack of a better term, prosumer market moving in towards larger sensors and better glass to put on it that's faster, that'll allow for you know more bokeh and more cinematic effects and stuff like that. That, yeah, I, I know quite a few people that shot with the T2i forever and then went, Hey, I'd really enjoy having zebras and focus assist and automatic focus on a few occasions. Like th- th- these are all things that. I originally started having along with like, you know, video for, uh, HDSDI outputs yeah. for certain systems and all that kind of stuff that it's like, it depends on where you are in the marketplace. If you're still a single shooter, I have a hard time seeing anyone moving away from DSLRs if they're a one man band because they're small, they're light and they're cheap and they look great. If you are like running multiple cameras or you've, you're doing more of a larger production and you need something that's actually going to like, do everything when you need it to like ENG, like news gathering and stuff like that. That's where I see people going towards like a C300 and stuff like that, which I don't think a C300 or C100 counts as a DSLR. So I see them moving towards those kind of cameras because they want to get their zebras back, their false colors, all this other stuff that helps them do their job uh, faster and more accurately, as well as like just good audio inputs. That's still a struggle with DSLR cameras because it's not a priority on a DSLR. So you're running two systems and then that's a nightmare in post. So it's, it's, it's things like that, that even though people have built these tools to kind of ham the two things together and make DSLRs a workflow, uh, there's going to be always those people who I think eventually go, uh, like, I need this to be Johnny on the spot and be ready to go. I can't be sitting here fuddling with two record buttons or this or that or anything else. And when a system fails, then you start to really hate the way that everything so works. Wait, so wait, are you advocating for moving away from the DSLR <laughs> or against it? Because I'm, I'm, I've lost I'm, it. I'm like, wait, I, wait. I'm saying it's one of those where now I'm that it's in the marketplace, it, once it's on the marketplace, I think that it has a place. And like I said, single shooters, 
uh, people who are just doing one thing by themselves, kids who are making, you know, feature films in their basement and stuff like that. DSLRs make sense. They're small. They're easy to access. There's a bazillion old lenses you can slap on them, and there's so much you can do with them. Creatively speaking, it makes a lot of sense for you to have that kind of a camera. I go, but there's other times where when, you know, I'm going out to shoot uh, something for, let's say, like uh, Access TV or something like that, where a large ENG camera on my shoulder makes so much more sense because it puts everything I need right there. It's got, you know, the eyepiece and everything else that I need. Like everything is just I pick up the camera and I shoot. And that's something that DSLRs will never be because they aren't that kind of camera. You need, you know, better audio and you need like multiple batteries and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just saying that while we do things like a, an RNG from Lunchbox and everything else to piece these things together, a DSLR is never going to be that camera that's Johnny on the spot. And eventually, if you're, if you're in those situations and your DSLR system fails you in one way or another, you're going to wish you had a prosumer system or, you know, a more professional system. But it's, it's the same thing. Like, even though Red, may be, people may say the Red is the best-looking camera in the world, whatever, no one's going to go out and shoot a news story with a Red camera. No. So it's, Aerie, it's always the Aerie right camera wins, man. Airy wins over Red, <laughs> I think, anymore. Fine. An Airy camera. No one's going to go out and shoot, like, you know, an interview or something like that with an Airy camera unless they're doing some kind of crazy fancy documentary about Steve Jobs or something like that because uh, it just it's too much hassle. It's too much work because that requires a team to operate an Airy. A DSLR kind of requires one person. And there's kind of this middle ground where I could see a lot of people being like, I need a camera that's going to last me all day. I can't be swapping batteries in the middle of a two-hour interview. And that's where they're, you know, probably well, yeah, but there's, better I mean, I don't know if the battery thing's really where I, you're, you sell me on it. Because <laughs> if you think about the batteries, you know, there you can buy a dummy battery for any camera imaginable and yeah. hook it up. And you can run all day long on that. And yeah. I'm holding up the GH4 right now because the GH4, you know, it doesn't have the recording limit that you're stuck with with other camera right. bodies. So. With this, and I was actually shooting interviews uh, yesterday and the day before, and I was using this camera right here with this particular cage, and I just had a wireless mic hooked up, and basically I can walk in with something as small as you know a single duffel bag and have everything my you know my tripod, my camera, uh, three LED lights, a wireless setup, and then an extra monitor. Pop it on there make sure I'm in focus, hit record, and the guy talks into the camera for 15 minutes, and then I cut around it when I'm, you know, I'm done working. And, right. and, and this like, is so convenient and tiny, uh, unless they come up with a, an appropriate size and form factor that will replace this. Like, I would be completely fine. Remember, wh- who was it? Was it Fuji that released that uh, Micro Four Thirds sensor camera recently that uh, we were talking about? It was like a brand we hadn't thought of for a while. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, you, you know I, what I I'm talking about. Talking about yeah, I think it, it's not Panasonic, camera. but it's like it's using a, a, a Micro Four Thirds sensor. You know, something in that range. Like if you had for me today, and you said, "All right, DJ, here is basically a GH4 that's about this much bigger, and it has XLR mm-hmm. inputs. It has you know a better screen. It has a few extra features that I need and want." Then I would mm-hmm. immediately say, "Okay." I'm done with this, you know, out the door, give me that thing, because that thing is one button, good to go. But the issue... And I'm saying those those aren't DSLRs to me. You adding all that stuff and changing the form factor and changing the size and weight, that's no longer what I would classify as a DSLR. That's like this kind of halfway camera where it's not as big as a prosumer, uh, but it's bigger than a DSLR. Maybe it's got a fixed lens. Also, too, I mean, for you running around doing your DSLRs, how do you do like your slow pushes and, and pullouts? I, you don't have a motorized system for that. You don't. I have do it like, like this. Setup. I just go. 
with my hand and I, you know, twist it around and it's fine, you know, or I good. use a slider and like, you know, you cut away before you F it up and you're good to go. And then you cut back again. I mean, it's, it's that easy. Like I know a yeah. lot of people are like, Oh yeah. you know, I need to follow focus. I need all these other things. Honestly, to do an interview. I mean, you can do most of that no. by hand. And a lot of times you're shooting somebody for an hour or two hours and you only really need maybe five minutes. And sometimes like you just, are asking questions to get them to say the things that you want to say while you're filming them. So if mm -hmm. you screwed it up the first time, you ask them a question that's basically the same question phrased differently, and you do it later on so then they answer the question again, and you've got it. And, I mean, I know that's kind of a hokey method for going, but, you know, in an hour interview sort of situation, I mean, no one remembers that you asked them that same question at the beginning of the interview. It's, no, it's, but I love, I love that, I love that we're having this discussion because I think we're bringing up a lot of good points. Uh, part of me though is that there are things I struggle with in a DSLR workflow, and like you said, yeah, there's always a battery solution, and I'm like, there is. But once we start fixing everything, we fix audio with a box, and we fix batteries with another box, and everything else. To me, I'm like, you just keep creating this, this monster, this Frankenstein out of your gear, and while that works, and a lot of people will still do it because it works for them and it has the look they want and the camera has the features they want and i would never want to take that away from them i go sometimes i'm like i don't want to deal with like all these boxes and assembling this rig and everything else i just want one thing i can pick up and it just works when i need it to so i'm just everything's got its own place it's just one of those that like documentary shooting is one of those situations where i still don't see a lot of people rolling around with dslrs unless it's their b cam they're usually doing something that's got an autofocus that works on the spot when it needs to, you know, a powered zoom system and a battery where they only have three bricks they need to carry with them and they don't need to take their camera out of their rig in order to pop a new battery onto it. It's like little things like that, that, you know, just make it easier to work in certain situations. So I'm not saying that they'd ever go away, uh, but I'm saying that there, I could see them starting to make cameras that say, hey, we can give you some of the stuff you like from DSLRs in a form factor with the features like zebras and everything else that you come to expect. Things like Vlog, which, you know, doesn't come on a GH4. It's like little uh, things like soon that. Will. That's like, <laughs> I know, I know, because everyone's adapting and changing. I'm just saying there's all these little things we talk about, like, oh, they're coming out with this, or you can do this. You can use an external monitor so you can like, do this and do external recording and stuff. A lot of these, you know, uh, smaller shoulder-mounted cameras will sit here and, and record dual onto two memory cards, so you've got backups and stuff. So it's little things like that that I go, you're eliminating a bunch of gear I need to carry around, and I can almost make my package smaller with a prosumer-sized camera because I don't need extra boxes hanging off of it. Well, and I but think that's, you don't always need that. That's what I was arguing for is actually yeah. give me a GH4 that is – in the same price range, let's say I'll pay $3,000. That would be my limit. Give me a GH4 mm -hmm. that's $3,000, has basically the same innards as a GH4. It's a little bit bigger, has XLR inputs, has a battery, better battery performance, and you know mm -hmm. maybe a couple of extra features. Really, the GH4 is full-featured for what I need. And yeah. I don't mind, you know, almost DSLR size. Like, I want it somewhere in, like, the Airy Mini you know, size form factor. So maybe come out like six inches, put all that stuff I just asked for in it. And I will gladly give you $3,000 and I will throw away my DSLRs tomorrow and move completely over to regular cameras. That, that was my dream with the C100 that I completely hate. Right. Is, oh, well, great. <laughs> now I don't have to worry about extra boxes, everything else. But the, mm -hmm. the C100 didn't do it for me. And it wasn't, it, 
it wasn't right. worth it for what I paid for it to, to accomplish what I need. So you know, I got rid you of You know it. what I would kind of want? I, and I know I may stand alone in this, but uh, part of your perfect GH5 that you're thinking of, um, I would appreciate a lens from Panasonic that's like, and I'm obviously in the minority, but that's like 5 to 50 millimeter at like, you know, F 2.0 or 2.8 or something like that through the whole focal range. Uh, that's got a motorized system. It's one of those lenses that I can quickly slam into any focal length I need it and hit record. And then that combined with the autofocus system on the GH4 that works, you know, really well, like one of the best focus now, systems. How much do you actually use autofocus? I, want, I just want to put this because this is, discussion is pretty interesting. I'm actually having a good sure. time talking about it. But <laughs> I want to know, like, do you, are you someone who uses autofocus continuously? Like, are you in autofocus mode when you're shooting on your GH3? I mean, is that something you use a lot? Is it worth it to you? Uh, it's, it, it's become worth it in a lot. I almost never use on my GH3 cause I'm always running manual lenses on that. But when I'm shooting with other cameras and I'm shooting with, uh, uh, the like Sony ENGs and stuff like that, um, it's not so much that they have an autofocus system, but it's that the form factor allows me to keep my hand on the focus system and to support the camera at the same time. And so that form factor works well for me cause I've got both hands on the lens uh, which is something that you don't normally do with the DSLRs, have both hands on the lens because then, you know, you wouldn't have very stable footage. So I know you could. Uh, I'm just saying that in general, it, it's that you've got one hand that handles zooming and the other hand that handles focus, and they both work beautifully together. And you can tell it's after 10 years of engineering that these two things work so smoothly and so well together that without looking at it or without thinking about it, you can just hit it. Uh, with something like the GH4, I'm doing focus assist and I'm zooming into the screen and making sure that everything is like okay and all that kind of stuff. So it's like these little things where I'm like, the, the, the reason for having those lenses is so that you can, within a second, put the camera at the focal length and at the uh, focus that you need to get the shot. And in the DSLR workflow, that's not doable because people just don't have those systems. You can't adapt some of the older ENG style, you know, but you got to crop the sensor, do other crazy stuff like that. But it's just one of those things that it's, it's a small thing. I'm in the minority. It's going away. When I go and see news uh, being captured today, people are using C300s. People are using 5Ds. I've seen some people with a 1DCs and stuff like that. They're all using, you know, whatever's the newest trend or camera or whatever else. There's still some people who are using like the prosumer stuff too. Because that era of news gathering where you would always use these giant bricks from Panasonic and Sony are just kind of going out the door because there's cheaper solutions now. But still, that lens system, after you run around in the middle of like there's a house on fire and you're trying to get 20 shots in one minute, when you have that, it works and it's brilliant. And you can never imagine doing all of that work in such a short period of time with something like a DSLR where you're fumbling around and the form factor isn't on your shoulder ready to go. So... It's not, it, like I said, it's not in demand. That's why they don't make that product because it's just one of those things that very few people use it. I mean, now too, uh, CBS, Fox News, and everybody else is all downsizing the amount of video people they have. They'll send out one reporter who usually is shooting their own stuff. You don't even send out a cameraman, a sound man, and a producer anymore. They send out one person, maybe two, if it's a good reporter and a good cameraman. But the cameraman now is doing audio too, as well as like handling uplink and everything else. So it's just one of those situations where I know I stand by myself, but it's one of those things that I go, I can really appreciate this in these certain situations. Would I take that lens on a film shoot? No, it'd be silly to, but it's just, you know, the right tool for the right job. Uh, you know, I've seen the rocker systems installed and Canon does still sell 
uh, twelve and eighteen thousand dollar rocker systems that have an incredible amount of reach, and they're most often used on things like Price Is Right or you know like <laughs> game shows yeah. and stuff like that. You know, um, yeah. I've been uh, been in the back room of some of those things and just operating camera because they needed someone, and it was like a side right. gig. And that's what they handed me was, oh, here here's your Zoom rocker. Make sure you follow this person across, and you know you're getting right. beamed back to the guy in the booth, and he's going to be cutting through and looking at everything and then you know moving stuff around so that's the situation where i would imagine in a those live environment most. but yeah uh, in a live environment because that way it allows you to jump around and then if they need to cut to you early because somebody's walked off camera or something like that uh you can switch your like slam zoom into a smooth zoom instantaneously yep. so there's there's lots of reasons why but, but it, news gathering right, it's mostly man, live i usually see and i've i've worked with a number of, of news organizations helping them get new cameras set up and they usually have like this the very first or second generation 1080p cameras that they paid like 40 yeah. grand for you know 10 when years ago switched over. and they yeah. haven't switched from that because they're still sort of absorbing the cost of that huge purchase even though now you can buy an equivalent or much nicer camera for two or three grand and so yeah. that's what i the only time i see the sort of thing you're talking about is really when they have right. one of those monsters like still laying around the studio like oh yeah send that out with dave he's a big guy he can handle that camera you know it's like <laughs> What is this? Right, no, no, I get, I, I guess it, it comes from me as a shooter is that I've seen the value in it and it just fits you like a glove and it just works. Every time I have a DSLR system with counterweights and extra boxes and uh, extra things I need to turn on, worry about being powered and everything else, it's just something that gets in the way of me pulling it out of the bag and shooting with it. So I'm not saying that there's just one way to do things. I'm just saying that these are the things I appreciate from an older way of doing things in an older system that nobody cares about today. Otherwise, people be making products with it. Like it's it's a factor of the market is that no one's making these kind of lenses anymore except like Sony and Panasonic and they only make them to go on their ENG cameras and they only do that because you know probably unions or something like that. What so just, unions? I just well because because people get used to a certain way of shooting and people yeah. get really upset if you if they've been shooting with a certain type of camera and then you're like okay well we bought DSLRs now so figure out how to use that that would upset a lot of people so there's a lot of stations that still buy this old equipment or keep it up and running because everyone's just kind of set in their ways. They don't want a Which grievance filed against them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, we've we beat that one into the ground. I was going to talk about something else, but you know what? I'm done. I'm done with that discussion. <laughs> We're going pretty long here, so we'll continue yeah. on down the line. Um, it is interesting, though. We'll see what happens with Canon because that could affect both Canon and Nikon in their sort of sales market, which that's kind of been supporting in the past is DSLR sales. Now, another company that I haven't heard from in a long time and kind of thought after Microsoft bought their phone division was sort of out of the loop, Nokia just announced the OZO. Uh, this is an eight camera with global shutter, eight microphones for spatial audio capturing, 3D environment capturing camera. And I'm going to show you guys what this thing looks like for those that are uh, watching or not watching the video, but listening to the audio. Uh, this thing is weird. It is like a sort of hairdryer looking <laughs> basketball sort of deal with a bunch of cameras all the way around it. No word yet on pricing, but the interesting thing that they're doing here, and I've got links to this, is they're taking pitches for possible video production and giving out grants based on upvotes for those ideas mm -hmm. so that you can actually get one of these cameras and film your next 3D virtual reality movie. Now, Devin, we've kind of talked a little bit about VR in the past. What do you think, yeah. man? Are, are people actually going to be able to come up with something 
that's really compelling that makes, you know, watching an entire movie on an Oculus Rift or something of that nature worthwhile? Um, this this is one of those where I feel like in the future, whether we like it or not, we will have Oculus Rift movies. We will have VR movies. And you will like it. I, I, think, I think that they will kind of... Uh, you know, pull back a little bit and die off a little bit. Kind of like the 3D thing when 3D uh, hit, you know, a second stride, I don't know, eight years ago or something like that. Every movie had to come out in 3D. Um, They all exaggerated the 3D and now uh, the few times, I don't particularly like it just because it never works right with my eyes, but uh, now when I go to 3D movies because someone drags me along, it's very subtle. They, They don't like try to make it wacky, go out of their way and be like, oh, look at how 3D the 3D is. Um, they kind of bring it back down and they make it more subtle. I think it's very similar to like the whole auto-tune thing in the music industry where it started off where everyone started doing it way too much and everything was sounding too much the same. And then people start to come back and go, okay, this is a tool for doing a certain thing. And, you know, we don't have to exaggerate every time we use it. And I feel like um, uh, VR, it's all about putting yourself in that space and that mindset. In terms of cinematically telling a story, I think that it's completely capable in that regard um, it's, it's one of those that I feel like you lose the art of cinematography more or less when you get into that mode while lighting and other things are still an element, uh, you painting a frame, uh, to, to put it one way, doesn't so you think it's anymore. gimmicky basically is what you're saying. I, I think it's a little bit gimmicky, but I'm not saying that you can't tell an emotional and compelling story in that space. I just think that a lot of the first ones that come out are going to hinge on the fact that they're VR and that's what they're going to advertise and push for. And then people will think they're really good. But then I think eventually people will start to wander away because they're, you're losing the element of having a frame that you're composing something in. Um, I'm well, not, now, hold I'm not on saying... a second, though. What about if you did something like, imagine uh, the Sixth Sense, you know, the classic, like, mm-hmm. at the end, oh, my God, you know, spoiler, he's, he's dead. You know, like, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, but that whole thing, you like, it, it's relying on these cues and clues and things like that. Now, what if you did something where you released the movie first and then you released the experience, which was the VR version, and the, the VR version, you could actually look around the world of the movie in three dimensions and see all the hints and stuff as the characters move through the scenes. So instead sure. of focusing in on the characters, you can focus in on the room that they're in and so on and so forth and work your way through the entire film that way. And, I, and it gives you a completely different the, perspective. The, core, the core of what you said there was the word experience because that's exactly what I see this being where you can enjoy in experiences in terms of making a feature I don't see that being a thing besides, you know, specialized projects. Like those projects, like say uh, Birdman, where it's all one continuous shot or something like that. Well, sort uh, of. I mean, you can see sort the of, cuts. Yeah. You just look for yeah. any time they pass a wall and you're, you're there. I'm just, but I'm saying, generally speaking, that style of it all being one seamless experience, that's where this works well. But imagine for a moment, like you're in the VR world and you're looking to the right because you're looking at some detail, like it's a horror movie and you're hearing scratching in the bottom right. So you look to the bottom right and then it cuts shots, you know, to something jumping out in your face. It's just one of those that I feel like it's just not going to connect and make you dizzy because you can't combine editing and a VR experience. Because when you're in VR, you're choosing the cinematography, you're choosing where to look. And that, in essence, you're painting the picture yourself. And if you start trying to cut on top of somebody who's trying to look around, you're going to end up in a very surreal place where you don't understand which way is up. Well, there's solutions for that, though. I mean, if you put the experience sort of on rails where you remember the old uh, adventure games from the like early 90s where 
you know, uh, Phantasmagoria was a good example. They had video yeah. production in, incorporated into like a move around sort of adventure. So the story couldn't continue until you did something that the creators wanted you to do. So if you use that sort of on rails experience with VR, you have the time to like get into, you know, the room of the character and like look around and see everything in the mm-hmm. room and like dig in their closet or whatever. And then to go forward with the film, you have to step through the doorway or you have to open up something or you have to like move. Right. Not a video game experience, but sort of a hybrid of film and a point and click adventure, I guess. I, you know, maybe that's not the right term, but you see where I'm going credit. I get where you're going with it. And to that credit, uh, yeah, I could see that being an experience that people would pay for and people would enjoy. Uh, but then, you know, the audience is controlling the pacing as well as the audience is controlling the cinematography. And then you reach a point where what is the artist doing and what is the artist giving them? Because if the audience is the one making all the calls on how things happen, you end up in this middle ground like video games where there is some artistic elements and the way you paint a picture and everything else. Wait, are you you saying that video games aren't art? Because that's another can of worms to get into, man. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm saying that they exist in between uh like movies and a you know pick your own adventure kind well, of yeah but okay now choose a choose your own adventure book like the yeah. experience that the artist brings to the table is the entire book uh you know the everything mm-hmm. so if your design is like there's alternate paths maybe there's only one way to win at the movie and you can go through and fail a bunch of times now you're providing a movie that could take you know, could eat up three or four days worth of someone's time. And that's a more valuable experience and it's not video gaming. So you don't have to be, you know, really good at, you know, point and shoot killing and stuff like that. You just have to be ready to submerge yourself into it. And then also have like a, a path that is the cuts and is the edits and is the viewing experience. It's like an hour and a half of that thing. So that now when you sell a product you're not just selling the film you're selling the 3d experience, experience you're selling yeah. the adventure you're selling the you know the time that it it eats up for you that you get to spend in this immersive environment and you know i mean that could go pretty far you're you're absolutely right and that's exactly where i see this kind of stuff going but uh it, it, tell me that like in that vr world you created that if you watched the movie uh, inside out in that VR world that it would have the same emotional impact that it did when you watched it just as a normal movie, because you're talking about taking away some of the art of cutting it and taking away some of the art of the cinematography, um, as well as things like emotional beats and music beats and everything else. Cause just composing a score that goes with the film is kind of an element of editing. And, uh, you take away all that and it's still in there, but it's not kind of like at the right pacing or the right order or anything like that. And then tell me that you're still going to have the same emotional response to a film uh, when it's a part of this experience. So I'm, I'm saying it's really There's good ways for to do that, though. I mean, you can cue you can still cue music. You know, I'm you asking, can... would you enjoy it? Would you enjoy it as much? I don't know. I mean, that's very subjective. It's very hard to like pin your finger down and say, I would definitely enjoy this, but I think it would be an experience I'd be willing to pay for. And uh, you know, maybe it is just, um, a thing that will be exciting for a few months and then people will get tired of it. But if that's enough to completely create a brand new form of video creation and, you know, a market around Mm -hmm. it, that's good enough for me. And you know, you start doing this now, what's to stop you from say, okay, now I'm going to do, 
a Pixar style CG film and I'm going to do that with, you know, real scenery where I've used this camera to film all the backgrounds and I've placed these CG characters that you can interact with. And like now you mm-hmm. have a walk around sort of adventure film that's set up sort of like, I don't know, Final Fantasy or, hey, you got to yeah. go ask the uh, vendor over at wherever, like for the key to the bathroom at the, you know, pub down the street so you can get in there and then you'll find your sword and then you can stab somebody or, you know, stuff like that. Right. And but but part of it to to that uh, one last thing is that uh, while I see that happening and I would gladly pay to have an experience like that if it is a good experience, um, I just don't think I'm going to have the same emotional response, uh, even though I'm a part of the world and I'm the one walking around or whatever. Uh, it's just one of those that I don't think uh, necessarily, you know, not to be like sound pretentious, but like the beauty of the whole situation uh, or what I'm taking in. I feel like you lose a lot and I feel like I wouldn't have an emotional response as strong as when somebody's kind of like wrote a story for me or somebody's like made a movie. Um, I think that it's just a different experience. Video games, the only time video games have given me that strong of emotional response is when they literally have cutscenes that are exactly like a movie with, you know, uh, the emotional beats and timing and everything else. Things like um, uh, The Last of Us and stuff like that. The best parts of that that people have that emotional response with is during the cutscenes because that's where a lot of the character and story come out. And the interactive element is fun, and people enjoy that part too. It's a great game overall, but you got to look at, they literally went back to making a movie at some parts because that was the best way to deliver the kind of story they wanted to deliver. So to each their own, what I do see this being good for that I think we can both agree on is for recording and sharing experiences. Imagine if you set one of these up right in front of, like, say, the bride and groom, or like even for your own wedding. You could literally look around the room and look at the family and who's crying. Oh, that's dangerous, man. (laughs) You could really get into trouble with that. You know, like, oh, there's my cousin cheating on his wife with, you know, somebody else in the corner. Or, you know, oh, shoot, my wife was holding, you know, my future wife is holding the hand of this other dude. And we caught it in three dimensions because now the camera's looking (laughs) everywhere. You know, that's that's scary. I mean, that could really turn into a an issue but that's that's one of those is that now you're recording and giving somebody else an experience and not all experiences are good and it's not like photoshop where you necessarily edit around things and you cover things up and you paint a picture this is more i'm just recording all this and if i'm giving it to somebody else unless i am the you know composer of the entire I guess world, it's not even a frame now, the entire world around us, and I'm controlling every element, then this is basically an experience. And what's happening is real life. And when you watch it, you will be experiencing what really happened. So I see it being really strong in those kind of regards. Um, obviously, we have some creative differences about uh, yeah, the story it, element. If of you're it. going that direction, I would say the best bet would actually be like tours. Like if you're you have a virtual a group hand of kids, yep. Ex- well, no, not even that. Like imagine you have a class and you're in geography class, and you're like, okay, kids, today we're going to show you uh, Paris, France, and we're going to show you the Eiffel Tower, and we're going to show you around, and you have like a interactive walking tour with your instructor yeah. in virtual reality, where he's like. Okay, here's the Eiffel Tower. It was built in 18 whatever, and you know, so and so worked on this particular part of the design, and like you can highlight things and point it all out and have it go. And then you're like, okay, we're done talking about that. Let's move on to this historic building. Yeah. Here is the you know art that was installed I would, here. I, I would pay money for that. I would love it because that was like, remember when the internet first started in like, uh, like Windows 95 or maybe 98 when you booted up. Uh, they kind of advertise like, where would you want to go today? As like the internet being this place that could take you to other places and experience other things. Oh, back when Netscape like... was a thing. 
<laughs> yeah, when Netski was a thing. But that's what these these VR cameras make me think of is that it's kind of like that coming to life, uh, especially for tours and stuff like that. Um, even like riots that happen, even awful experiences that happen, being able to kind of view them in whatever way you want to view them in terms of what you want to look at and having control over what you're consuming, uh, that that's a really interesting element to it. And you're right, tours... I'm thinking of like also too the you know when um Disney does the the ride with the hand gliding tour thing or whatever on that big screen yeah yeah like the Back to the Future Soar- flying in the DeLorean soaring over California that's what I was thinking of uh, in California Adventure they've got one where you your feet dangle and you're like on this hand glider but you're in front of this giant IMAX screen basically that's curved around you so it feels your field of vision I imagine doing the same thing now at home. With these VR cameras and VR headsets and everything else, you could look all around you. You can fly over the coast. You can, you know, go check out the Eiffel Tower and see what that's like. You could go to, you know, uh, Rome and uh, look at, you know, them reconstructing whatever. I could also see this being pretty cool for live as well. Having a live streaming spherical video would be interesting in a few places just to hop in and check out what life is like elsewhere. Um, you know, I guess it's a big picture thing. I could say, oh, like bringing the entire world together, working towards world peace and everything else because no, we're happen, better man. understanding each other. But uh, it'll definitely be used for profit and corporate gain as, you, as, as everything else. But in this situation, that's what I see here. And I mean, I'm excited for it. Like I said, I'm not convinced there's going to be a very strong I'm going to have a my, me myself. I'll speak for myself that I'll have a strong emotional experience. Uh, with this kind of stuff, except for in small doses of it being an experience in, in terms of compared to a full feature length film. But I'm still excited and I would love to play around with this kind of technology. So I'm glad to see Nokia is like not dead because uh, all they've been doing is making Windows phones and Windows phones haven't exactly been super hot as of late. So yeah, I'm glad of, to see them move to their stuff. Speaking yeah. of small things here, let's roll on to this Grava camera. Uh, this is a small action cam, sort of action cam, But the interesting part is not the action. It's actually the software behind it. And uh, I was actually talking about this with uh, Mitch on the last podcast, and he mentioned something that was really interesting. He interviewed uh, the creators, and they wanted to tell him right away that they are a software company, not necessarily a manufacturer of cameras. But uh, this little guy basically is about the size of a GoPro. It starts at about 250 bucks. It straps to your head or to anything else you can attach it to, similar to any other action cam. And it gives you uh, automatic editing, basically. Devin, you know, we've been kind of going on and on about all these different methods and ways of editing stuff and how <laughs> you could make something more interactive. What do you think of this? Three hours of video can be condensed down into five, 10, or 15 minutes just by sliding a dial, and it's basing everything that's going on around you and how important it is on action, motion, and location. I mean, that sounds pretty nice for events and stuff like that, right? Absolutely. I can't predict the future, but I think um, uh, this Grava is either going to get bought out by GoPro um, or it's going to become the start of a big change in the way that consumers not professionals but consumers uh take in footage and do things because if you had something that could always take your day at the beach or whatever else and turn it into a mildly interesting video we're not even talking about an amazing video just mildly interesting of two minutes that your friends would actually sit through and watch in this culture that we have of we share everything and we take a thousand pictures of everything and share all of it uh i think this fills that perfect gap where video has always been pretty unattainable to consumers because Editing is one of those things that is takes time, 
uh, and in some cases expertise. I mean, iMovie isn't terribly hard to use, but it's one of those that you got to sort through footage. It's like the most uh, worst part of it is sorting through footage. <laughs> you you want to get to the point where you're like cutting things together with music and like grooving and feeling it. So uh, maybe for me, maybe there's guys out there who just love sorting through footage. All oh day man, my favorite you. thing is to spend four <laughs> months straight in front of a computer screen in this chair right here, just <laughs> editing and correcting and fixing minutia. That's amazing. I right. love it. So, well, for us pros, I don't see anything super great with it, except that, you know, maybe if it gave you pointers on, hey, something happened here, something happened here, it can make things go a little faster in terms of in the edit bay. I think for consumers, it's one of those that, like, I'm interested in a product like this so that when I go out uh, skateboarding or I go out, you know, skydiving or something like that, this is all just making a video for me. I don't have to work. I just sit here and I upload it to, you know, Facebook and go, hey, everyone, look how cool I am because I went out and did stuff. So uh, it's one of those that the price uh, is perfectly, I think, priced for consumers because it's like right there in the lower end GoPro price. I mean, $400 is a lot, but I'm imagining they're going to just overflow with pre-orders if they can get consumers out to look at this. The problem is, is right now, I think the only people who are taking any serious thought on this is like professionals, which I don't think they have much use. Now, hold on a second. I've got a use for this, man. Imagine for a minute, if you will, like all the people it takes to cover a convention. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. any kind of big meetup like NAB, uh, uh, the uh, MM, what is the music one? MIAA, or, you know, you know, mm-hmm. all the different, yeah. anything, like even an anime festival or like a comic book festival. Imagine if you had like seven of these and they all sync up with each other. They all are detecting motion and important things that are happening. And you can basically hand these out like candy to five or six or seven of your uh, confidants, send them around the convention floor, all doing different stuff. And then when you're done, you just drop it in and it kicks out a five minute, six minute or whatever B-roll video. And now you have the great option to show everything that you couldn't normally cover that way. And you have mm-hmm. the option to just talk in front of it. So now... Like, what? Oh, okay, I cut to me, like, this has been a great convention. Look at this. And then, like, it's all this stuff going on and all this these cool little bits. And then it cuts back to you, and you're like, also, this happened. And then it cuts back to that again. And, like, now you've mm-hmm. basically, like, eliminated three-quarters of the issues that are required for editing for something like that. Uh, a lot of times covering an event, you'll see in the newsroom, people are in there like zombies just sitting there ingesting footage on their laptops <laughs> and, like, using the yeah. motel Wi-Fi or whatever they can get to upload footage as fast as possible. And if they're lucky, maybe scrolling through seven, six, maybe even as low as five video outputs an hour, you know, and that's – or even a day, depending on, like, how in-depth the video cuts are. Uh, with something like this, if you could just – set and forget record three hours worth of stuff and then dump it onto your laptop and this software generates something that's even remotely interesting Uh, the other thing and you're absolutely right for facebook imagine the voyeuristic things that we have right now people want i've talked to people Mm -hmm. that are like hey i want to get a dslr and it's like okay well what for well i want my pictures to look as awesome as my friends pictures on facebook (laughs) so that when i do something cool i can show them how cool i am so with something like this Mm -hmm. in the voyeuristic aspect you can be like okay i went to the beach and i went to this cool like restaurant or whatever i shot with this the whole time and bam out comes this awesome adventure video that's three minutes long that i can show off to my friends and tell them hey I have a way more awesome life than you because I did this today, you know, like that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and, and, but you know, for the thing of like you're saying with conventions and stuff like that, I could see it evolving into something closer to that. But remember it's, it's not a human. And so it's one of those where 
editing via software uh, that'll eventually come, especially for things like news. Like writing is already done by robots. Yeah, like two thirds uh, of the writing, especially because like... it's because it's formulaic. Yeah, exactly. And news editing and shooting is also formulaic. So anything that's formulaic, it's very easy for a little bit of clever programming and something that borders on the line of AI uh, to sit there and do for us. So it's one of those where you're right, event coverage uh, in a larger picture, I could see this being super useful in situations like that. Because like you said, they're a software company. Right now they look like a camera company, but they aren't concerned with that at all. They're concerned about making the next wave of editing for consumers. So in, in that regard, uh, for you know coverage and things like that, I definitely see it being really strong. It's one of those that it'll never replace like editing a feature film because that's something where somebody's supposed to make a choice on when things cut and what gets picked for what scenes and everything else. But in terms of event coverage and in terms of like sharing experiences with each other, once again, uh, this is one of those that it makes it super easy for consumers to start putting videos on Facebook, something that normally they probably shied away from because of the daunting task of editing. They're like, I could buy a GoPro, go check out my GoPro. And then like, they never use it because they'll record something and then they've got this 20 minute long video and they're like, well, I'm not gonna put a 20 minute long video on Facebook. Like that won't be interesting for people. So I think it bridges that gap. And I wouldn't be surprised if them after this camera release, people get interested in them, they just start providing software. So you just import GoPro files and they'll sit there and edit down your GoPro files for you. I mean, the strong thing here is that they've got the heart rate monitor built in. And I'm sure that's really a key to this thing working really well. But it doesn't mean that in terms of uh, I could visual go wrong fast too, though. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but they're they're also using visual and sound elements. I mean, they're using a lot of elements to bring this all together, and v the visuals and sound are included in every piece of footage. So I could see them their software also working with some success on just footage you already have. You don't necessarily need the heart rate monitor, uh, though. I'm sure that kind of delivers the best results because, you know, if if you're like like you pedal super hard up a hill or something like that, or you're uh, something jumps out and surprises you, that's exactly you know what you want to usually record and have in the edit. So I'm sure it works really well. I would love to get my hands on one of these and really like take it for a spin and go skateboarding with it and this and that and really see what it how how it how it handles all the footage and try to throw everything I can at it and see like you know can it really make compelling videos at least compelling enough for Facebook sharing because it's well you're not gonna make a commercial but you already have stuff like uh, uh, Google's Photo Assistant now that uh, yeah. it's actually been and I've got a few of these alerts on my phone it it will ingest a bunch of video clips from a random shoot that I did and then create yeah. these cute little vignettes that are you know, 30 mm -hmm. seconds, a minute long. And some of them are even like, they're even sort of good, you know, clever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the law of numbers goes that you throw enough at it and then something good's going to come out of it. And <laughs> so I just opened up my, all of my editing folders to photo assistant and, and letting them ingest it and see what comes out of it. And you know, every three or four days, something, a little gem pops out and you're like, wait a minute, what mm -hmm. is this? And you know, that's al algorithmic editing, but it's still sort of, um, at the beginning of this sort of technology, uh, this is a little bit more advanced, but still, I mean, imagine just talking parts. So if you are shooting a product review, for example, and you have four or three or two, or even just two of these, like you have one facing you and one that's on the table, the one that's facing you, it detects when you're talking to it and moving around and it's, it's filming you. And then you reach down into the window where the product is and it notices that your hands moved. And so then it switches over to that camera. And like, now you do all that. Now you've done a complete show to how uh, sh yeah, show to how to <laughs> or show and tell of something. 
and you haven't had to do any video editing at all. And you can say, well, I want this to only be two minutes. So then it cuts for you ahead of time to that size. That was one of the most interesting things I saw in the preview video of this is actually that you can scroll through the amount of time that you want it to cut out and, and create a video with. So you, you can five minutes is arbitrary. You can actually slide the slider over to 10 minutes, eight minutes, seven minutes, and it'll generate yeah. whatever it can from your footage based on that time frame that you allot it. And it'll prioritize stuff that, it, you know, what other algorithm decides is the most important. So... You know, for action stuff, I mean, there's always going to be cool stuff you're doing in high motion. It's pretty easy to say, like, bam. And so that's really easy to figure out what to edit and where to cut. With other stuff like news, you know, it's going to be a long ways off before we get to uh, news editing. Because, you know, even though it's very formulaic, you have the puppy story. You have the, you know, guy gets shot and the next-door neighbor is getting interviewed story. You have the house on fire. Sure. And there's enough of a difference between all of those and the way you would put those different bits together that it's not going to happen overnight. Now, with writing, like if you're writing business articles or, you know, if you're just writing the report on, you know, the cost of oil every day, you know, it's really easy to have an algorithm do that. This, mm -hmm. I think it's cool. I think you'll still, if you shoot with this all day long for the rest of your life, you'll probably, you know, every so often you'll get a gem and you'll be like, look at this, you know, and it's 249 <laughs> Uh, it's sure. the same price as uh, the GoPro that shoots uh, 1080p in this range. Actually, it's a little bit more expensive, but not too much. And if they start selling the software to other companies like GoPro or any of the other action cam manufacturers, I think there aren't very many now, Sony and, you know, yeah. anybody else you can think <laughs> of. Like, I think even... Yeah. Panasonic keeps making them too. Yeah. So, you know, if they sell that software off to those people and then they package it with their devices, that could make them more attractive. Uh, this may be just like the uh, tracking software we were talking about with the DJI, where like somebody comes up with it, people like it, and then you start seeing it implemented into everything. So maybe that's where mm -hmm. we're going. I don't know. Uh, it's cool, though. And another cool thing, and I'm the excited. last thing on the list, is this cup. Because we've gone a little long on the show with all these rat holes. <laughs> Devin, tell me about this eyepiece, man. You're the one who put this in the show notes. I know nothing about this <laughs> wacky-looking dude. Uh, it's just, it's one of those where this is uh, an item. They, uh, you know, a small group of camera guys uh, did some 3D printing and stuff like that. And they went, hey... Let's build a better eye cup because let's face it, if you've ever used a C100 eye cup, it sucks. You figured out you don't. <laughs> That's what happens. You hold it up to your eye and you go, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, and I've, I've always, I haven't been a big fan of my GH3's eye cup either. Uh, I mean, the viewfinder in the GH3 is kind of weak as well. But when they fixed it up in the GH4, I still wasn't a fan of that. So this is one of those where if you are somebody who uses the eye cup, which is usually few and far between, but if you are one of those people, uh, for about 35 bucks, you can get an eye cup for your GH4 slash GH3, uh, or for $45 ish, you can get one for your um, your C100, because I think the C300 has a decent eye cup if I remember right. So, yeah, and it has a better stem that comes further away from the body as opposed to being like yeah, right up against the and camera, it's articulating too, and all that kind of stuff. So it's just it's one of these cool things that it fixes a very small problem, and it's pretty reasonably priced. It's not like, uh, you know, a Zakudo iCub that they're going to charge 154 So it's one of those kind of situations where um, this looked like a good product. I haven't gotten my hands on it yet, but it's one of those things that if you've been frustrated by this and you'd like to use your iCub more, this may be, you know, that thing that gets you over the hill in terms of uh, starting to use an iCub on there. So probably more for the GH4 because the GH3 has a pretty lousy EVF as it is. It's low resolution. It's hard to get focus on, and iCub isn't going to fix that. 
Uh, but for a GH4, I could see it being useful, especially if you're doing something like DJ has in his hands right now, which is a very small No, I can rig. see this because I'm not talking, but I, uh, really quick, look. So I wear glasses, so these eye cups are you know, sort of not great for me. So I actually, most of the time, operate with no eye cup at all and just simply mm-hmm. you know, right up and to just the get your you just get your eye close to the screen, which can work. And but for some people, they want that eye cup to be a third point of contact to stabilize the camera, especially if you're not using a shoulder rig or something like yeah. that. So th- I see this being very useful and fixing a minor annoyance with the camera. That's why I want to put it in there. If there's any GH3, GH4 shooters out there, or somebody's got a C100 who's not using um, an external EVF. It's it's definitely something to consider because I think the price is good for what they're asking. Man, I don't know. Even with the eyepiece on the C100, I I would call that unusable just because, like, <laughs> to put your face onto it, there's so much surface behind, you know, right there that yeah. you're like you almost have to lay your head sideways and like turn your nose that... so you don't smash your nose up against the camera. And you'll and, and there is a video if you go to the website in the show notes. There is a video of him holding up the C100. Uh, with the eye cup on there and you can kind of tell he's turning his face to the side a lot in order to apply the camera to his face because even though the eye cup reaches probably a good half an inch away from the camera uh, it's still not like the c300 where it's actually protruding quite well so uh, but it's one of those that um, it's one of those that makes it usable because both of these eyepieces i've said have not been usable in the form factor that they're in and i think this makes them usable so that's why i throw it out there yeah and the gh4 is uh EVF is is very nice. It's really good and uh, it's super yeah. crystal clear. I, you know they've gotten they, into- they listened they listened to the consumers when the GH3 came out and they went I can't even tell if I'm in focus. What is this? And on the GH4 they went okay we'll fix it. Yeah, the GH3. I when I first messed around with that I just was like nah this isn't for me. <laughs> no thank you. <laughs> I played with it a little bit but the GH4 that really did it. Um, okay, yeah. anything else you want to add before we no, wrap up this yeah. extra long show? over again we're always over oh that's okay all right guys well on that note you can find devin where uh impulse networks.tv and you can find me yes. on dslrfilmnoob.com you can find me on twitter under dslr film noob you can also find the show on soundcloud itunes and anywhere else podcasts are distributed devin what's your hashtag uh maverick that's okay <laughs> i don't use twitter a lot he I'm doesn't sorry. use twitter okay uh, be sure to send us questions, emails. The show notes are always available. And swing over to the site or SoundCloud to download the full audio version of this cast. On that note, guys, make sure you also click that like button. Because that, uh, I don't know what that does, actually. Helps out the show. Yeah, it helps out the it, show. It, if you don't you don't pay for the show, it's free. Devin and I just burned an hour <laughs> and a half on this. And, uh, you know, so uh, make sure you do that. Enjoy doing it. And review it. I love talking to Devin every week. And uh, hopefully you guys like listening to him because he's a great guy. And I'm going to end the show now because I've been complimenting <laughs> Devin too much. On that note, we'll see you next week on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob.